thunder cracks as the man closes the door behind him and takes off his soaked overcoat. He goes into the chamber in which they were to meet. He thought he was late, but it didn't look like even half the folks were there yet. Then someone announces that they might as well get started as it looked like this was about all we could expect. There can't be but about 40 folks here, he thought to himself. That wasn't even a fourth of the congressional membership. Someone makes a motion that it was inexpedient to make any nominations. There was a second. All in favor? The hands shot up. Motion to adjourn? Second. The vote is taken. He gets his coat back on and heads out into the rain again. I guess it's to be four more years of Mr. Monroe, someone quips. Ah, well, we could do worse. Yeah, another person pipes up. It could be that madman, the hero of New Orleans. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Harrison Podcast. I am, as always, your host, Jerry Landry. The specific details of the Congressional Caucus held in early April 1820 are likely lost to history. At the very least, I haven't been able to find a detailed account of them. However, hopefully this little scene helped you to get the gist of it. Monroe wasn't even renominated by the Congressional Caucus that year. As historian Lynn Turner writes about it, quote, A heavy rainstorm and an even heavier blanket of indifference kept all but 40 congressmen securely in their boarding houses. They quickly decided not to nominate anyone and adjourned. To the modern mind, it seems almost unbelievable that James Monroe would not only be re-elected, but re-elected without any serious opposition, given the state of things in the nation. An economic downturn, the first during peacetime in the nation's history, had begun in 1819 due to, quote, wild speculation in public lands and private banks, and kicked into high gear, quote, by a sudden contraction of credit on the part of the Bank of the United States. That's right, that agency that was supposed to ensure economic security. Secretary of War John C. Calhoun asserted that, quote, an immense revolution of fortunes had occurred in every part of the Union. Enormous numbers of persons utterly ruined, multitudes in deep distress, and a general mass of disaffection to the government not concentrated in any particular direction, but ready to seize upon any event and looking out anywhere for a leader. This leader did not seem to be in Washington, though. As noted by Turner, quote, neither Congress nor the President suggested any immediate measures to relieve the people from their distress. Meanwhile, the government had its first deficit since the War of 1812 and 1819 and was forced to add $3 million to the public debt in order to fund operations in 1820. On top of that, the Missouri crisis had flared up. We'll go back to that one in a minute. Suffice it to say, the quote-unquote era of good feelings was not all it was cracked up to be. Why, then, did James Monroe get a second term in office? Apathy seems to play a large role in this. As was published in the Ohio Monitor in April that year, quote, There appears no great excitement in any quarter concerning the next presidential election. In most of the states, the elections for presidential electors occur with great quietness. Too great, perhaps, for the general safety of the republic. It should also be noted that the opposition party had all but closed up shop. Turner notes that, quote, even the 13 identifiable Federalists among the 235 electors, eight from Massachusetts, four from Delaware, and one from Maryland, all voted for Monroe. As printed in the Federalist newspaper, the Boston Intelligencer and Evening Gazette, quote, Now if voting for Mr. Monroe be the touchstone of republicanism, 
We suspect that after the election, people will be puzzled to find any but Republicans in the Union. Even former President and staunch Federalist John Adams, heading up the delegation of electors for Massachusetts, cast his vote for Monroe. Only one elector, New Hampshire Governor William Plumer, cast his vote for Secretary of State John Quincy Adams. Monroe biographer Harry Ammond asserted that, quote, without opposition within his own party, there was nothing to make the election more than a routine formality. Whether a citizen voted or not, Monroe would be elected. Voter turnout was indeed low, and Monroe was in for another term. The assumption, though, was that this would be Mr. Monroe's last race, and thus, the election wasn't over before people started talking about 1824. As the Federalists were out of the game, quote, political competition now took place within the surviving national party. And even as early as 1820, a newspaper was dubbing the 1824 election, quote, the War of the Giants. Let's take a look at the landscape of contenders before we turn back to the Speaker of the House, Mr. Clay. Longtime listeners to this podcast are already acquainted with two of the contenders, but for those who are not as familiar with them, let's turn first to John Quincy Adams and Andrew Jackson. Adams was, of course, the firstborn son of former President John Adams and, quote, had grown up under an oppressive mandate of duty. He had spent many years in public service, first acting as a secretary to diplomats in Europe before being appointed as U.S. Minister to Holland, then serving as U.S. Minister to Prussia before returning stateside for a stint in the Senate. He made his return to Europe as U.S. Minister to Russia, which is where we found him in episode 34 when he left that post to join the U.S. Peace Commission in Ghent. This was followed by, as mentioned last episode, a term as U.S. Minister to Great Britain. He was, by far, the most experienced diplomat that the U.S. had at that point in history. But the question remained whether he could translate his experience to garner enough support to earn the highest domestic post in the land. As noted by historian Mary Hargreaves, quote, Despite his lengthy career in public service, Adams had never, prior to the campaign of 1824, attempted to develop an organized political following. Likewise, the fact that he had been associated with the Federalist Party prior to its departure from the national stage, along with his reputation for being, quote, singularly cold and repulsive, were seen as factors that may hinder his chances. Like Adams, Andrew Jackson had little civil public service experience of which to speak going into 1824. He had served terms of less than a year each as a U.S. representative, territorial governor of Florida, and two brief forays into the U.S. Senate, with over two decades between his services in that body. Most of his public service to date had been in the military, and despite his fame as the hero of the Battle of New Orleans, as discussed last episode, there were some points in his service record that made people question whether he was temperamentally suited to the presidency. However, his common appeal and more humble background were seen by his supporters as a strength rather than a weakness. Reportedly, a woman who had known Jackson during his years in North Carolina before striking out for Tennessee had been in disbelief when she heard that his name was being put forward for the presidency. As she exclaimed, quote, Well, if Andrew Jackson can be president, anybody can. Some people didn't think that to be a bad thing. The last two contenders were, like Adams, members of James Monroe's cabinet. Secretary of the Treasury William Crawford of Georgia was described as being, quote, a huge, ruggedly handsome man who had an excellent mind, warm family ties, and a strong sense of honesty, 
but was at the same time sometimes awkward, lacked social grace, and expressed himself with a bluntness that appeared ill-tempered and overbearing. He had served as a U.S. Senator and Minister to France before joining Monroe's cabinet, and had used this position both to undermine his competition for the presidency in the cabinet, as well as to harness the patronage power of the Treasury for his personal political benefit, both of which hindered the work of the Monroe administration. As noted by Monroe biographer Harry Ammond, if not directly instrumental in organizing an anti-administration opposition, Crawford certainly did nothing to restrain his followers. The final contender in Monroe's cabinet hailed from the state of South Carolina, Secretary of War John C. Calhoun. Calhoun was described as being, quote, tall, magnetic, quick-witted, and socially at ease. He had made a name for himself in Congress as a war hawk in the lead-up to war, then as a supporter of Madison's administration afterwards. Ascending to the post at the War Department, Calhoun brought, quote, to the department an administrative energy and efficiency it had never previously enjoyed. Calhoun's main hindrance in his quest for the presidency as 1824 drew ever closer, according to Hargreaves, was the fact that his, quote, appeal was directed primarily to the established political leadership, and thus he did not have the electoral support that someone well-known to the nation like Adams or Crawford could expect. That brings us back to Clay. Like Calhoun, Hargreaves cites one of his weaknesses in his presidential run being that he wasn't well-known outside of Kentucky and Washington, D.C. Even in the modern day, with our extensive communications, the Speaker of the House is typically not well-known to the nation at large. Similarly, Henry Clay was not yet a household name as the nation entered the 1820s. However, another name was on everyone's lips. Missouri. On February 13, 1819, debate began in the House on the Missouri Territory's request for statehood. On the surface, this doesn't seem too bad. A new state coming into the Union? That's happened before, eight times by this point in the nation's history. However, the question of Missouri opened up the Pandora's box that American politicians had attempted to keep closed since the nation's founding. Missouri was a slave territory, and would thus give more strength and government to the South, a region that had been slowly losing influence at the national level due to the growth in population in the North from immigration. The problem that came up on the 13th was an amendment offered up by what would prove to be a one-term congressman from New York, a term that would have gone unmarked in the annals of history if not for this amendment that he put forth in 1819. Representative James Talmadge rose and offered up an amendment to the Missouri Enabling Bill that read, quote, provided that the further introduction of slavery or involuntary servitude be prohibited except for the punishment of crimes whereof the party shall have been duly convicted and that all children born within the said state of Missouri, after the admission thereof into the Union, shall be free, but may be held to service until the age of 25 years. That was the match that lit the flame. And Henry Clay, as Speaker, spent the remainder of the Congressional session trying to work out a compromise between the Southern congressmen, who decried the, quote, Northern skullduggery to block the expansion of slavery, and the northern congressmen, who realized their influence was on the rise and didn't want to see that progress threatened. Timing was everything, according to historian George Dangerfield, who, when examining this period in American history, noted that, quote, the Panic of 1819 was just beginning to show that the economic foundations of the Union were far from sound, 
and the Talmadge Amendment, which questioned the soundness of its ethical foundations, was a political weapon of the most dangerous kind. The debate got heated, with Representative Thomas Cobb of Georgia directly addressing Talmadge from the floor of the House and shaking his fist, asserting that, quote, If you persist, the Union will be dissolved. You have kindled a fire which all the waters of the ocean cannot put out, which seas of blood can only extinguish. To which Talmadge responded simply, quote, Let it come. Though the amendment passed in the House where the North already formed a majority, it was defeated in the Senate, and the question was kicked down the road as the Congressional session ended. Missouri would not sit quiet then. In the interim, the Territory prepared memorials to be submitted by their delegates' Congress upon its reconvening in December, requesting that it be invited to join the Union as a state. This new session, though, brought something that Henry Clay saw as an opportunity. The District of Maine had been a part of the state of Massachusetts since independence, but now it had sent a memorial to Congress asking to be allowed to join the Union as a state in its own right. Clay took to the floor of the House on February 8, 1820, and delivered a four-hour-long masterful speech, putting forward the idea of a compromise which would allow both Maine and Missouri to be admitted to the Union, and thus maintaining the balance between North and South. He also, as noted by Robert Remini, Quote, expressed his belief that the ultimate end of slavery would come if the laws of economics and population were permitted to operate. It should be noted that Clay did not believe that the Talmadge Amendment was constitutional and had opposed it in the previous session. After his speech, Clay would use his authority as Speaker to work a compromise bill through, ultimately appointing House members in favor of the compromise to a joint committee to work out the differences between the House and Senate versions. It was pronounced by the Richmond Enquirer to be a, quote, parliamentary coup de main. Finally, Clay had to use the rules of the House to stop a last-minute attempt by our old friend John Randolph of Roanoke, remember him from episode 33, to derail the compromise. It worked, and on March 6, 1820, President Monroe signed into law the compromise bill to bring both Maine and Missouri into the Union. This final bill also contained a provision banning slavery in any territory created from the lands of the Louisiana Purchase north of the 3630 line of latitude. With these moves, Clay was largely responsible for quelling one of the most serious sectional rifts in the nation's history to date. He accomplished this just in time to deal with a personal crisis of his own. Because of his work in Congress and his travel back and forth between Washington and Lexington, Clay had not been able to do much work for his law practice. Meanwhile, the financial panic had hit his pocketbook pretty hard, as he had opened it up for friends and family members who found themselves in even more dire of financial straits. To support himself and his large family, eight children were still alive at this point, with one more to come in 1821, Clay took out a $20,000 interest-bearing loan due for repayment by August 1st, 1822. There really was only one thing to be done. On May 10th, 1820, Clay delivered a speech in Lexington, Kentucky, in which he announced that he would not seek re-election to the House that year and would retire from public life. He then took two immediate steps in that direction. Though he would serve out the remainder of his term of office, Clay resigned as Speaker of the House. Also, he put a notice in the Kentucky Reporter newspaper in early June that he would, quote, recommence his law practice. He spent most of the rest of the year working on cases that came his way and would be late in getting back to Washington for the final session of the term. Thankfully, he arrived just in the nick of time. 
Since the passage of the Compromise Bill in March, Missouri had put together a state constitution which contained a clause requiring the state legislature, when it organized, to pass a law, quote, to forbid free Negroes and mulattoes from entering Missouri. Northern congressmen were outraged, claiming that this violated Article IV of the National Constitution, which said that, quote, citizens of each state shall be entitled to all privileges and immunities of citizens in the several states. These congressmen claimed that this clause of the Missouri Constitution invalidated it, and thus, Missouri was still a territory. Clay arrived and took up his seat on January 16th and immediately went to work. A resolution had been introduced in the Senate which would admit Missouri as a state, but would pointedly not, quote, give the assent of Congress to any provision of the Constitution of Missouri which contravenes the U.S. Constitution. Clay then gave a speech in the House on January 29th in support of this resolution and argued that it would be much better to bring Missouri into the fold and iron out the details than to push them away, which might lead it to seek independence and possibly take other western states and territories with it. Clay delivered speech after speech as January gave way to February, then proposed that a select committee of 13 be appointed to find a way through the deadlock. Naturally, Clay was chosen as chairman of the committee and was a heavy influence on the new Speaker of the House in choosing the committee members. Clay was able to get a majority of the committee to agree to a report that he presented on February 10th, which would allow Missouri to be admitted to the Union, quote, upon the fundamental condition that it not pass a law to prevent, quote, any description of person to settle in Missouri who is or might become a citizen of another state in the Union. However, even this was not enough to settle the conflict, and the question of Missouri continued to rage the next couple of weeks. Clay went back to the drawing board and on February 22nd made a motion for a special committee of 23 representatives to be chosen and to meet jointly with representatives from the Senate to consider and report out on the Missouri question. Naturally, Clay was on this committee as well, and Clay quickly convinced the House and Senate members to support similar wording for the report that he had presented on the 10th. His support in this committee was stronger than in the 13-man committee, so Clay moved quickly to maximize his effectiveness. He had the resolution printed, and on Monday, February 26th, he placed copies of the resolution on the desk of all the House representatives, even though he had no authority to do so. After a quick debate, the resolution passed the House by a vote of 87 to 81. The Senate followed up with its approval two days later, and by August 10, 1821, Monroe declared that Missouri had entered the Union as the 24th state. Clay's efforts would lead him to be dubbed, quote, the great compromiser, or the great pacificator, though the former has a bit better of a ring to it than the latter. In any event, the Missouri crisis, which had raged for nearly two years, was finally quelled just in time for Clay to take his leave of Washington. Clay would spend some time focused on the practice of law, earning the lucrative position of chief counsel in Ohio and Kentucky for the Bank of the United States, and of expanding the farming operations at his estate, Ashland. But he always kept one eye on Washington, and, in particular, the upcoming presidential election. By the spring of 1822, he was asking political friends around the nation for advice on what his next steps should be, and nearly all of them urged him to run again for the U.S. House and return to the speakership to get his name back to the public spotlight and to position him in Washington, where he would be better able to coordinate efforts on his behalf. Meanwhile, the Missouri State Legislature passed a resolution on November 7, 1822, endorsing Clay for the presidency, 
and was soon followed in the next two months by the state legislatures of Kentucky and Ohio. In his surveying the scene and noting the large number of candidates in the running, Clay increasingly started to feel that no candidate was likely to win a majority of the electoral votes, and thus the election would be thrown into the House, which made his returning to the Speaker's dais even more critical. Thus, Clay was back in his seat in the House on December 1, 1823, and was easily able to win election as Speaker over William Crawford's ally. In the meantime, newspaper copy attacking candidates was getting increasingly personal and acrimonious. As noted by Calhoun biographer Margaret Coit, quote, Any political promoter could skulk behind the editorial we, or seek protection from duels and lawsuits in the comfortable anonymity of pseudonyms like Cassius or Vox Populi. Editors could be as easily bought and sold as bolts of cloth. In Washington, Clay already had the support of the National Intelligencer, while the pro-Crawford Gazette was attacking the other candidates left and right. Calhoun launched the Washington Republican in fall 1822 in an attempt to boost his candidacy, but it was not to be. Mid-February 1824 found the Philadelphia delegation to the Pennsylvania State Convention that Calhoun had counted on as key for his viability instead endorsed Andrew Jackson. After this, Calhoun would turn his focus to garnering support for the vice presidency from both Adams and Jackson supporters. The field was now down to four, although another candidate was struggling as well. In early summer 1823, while vacationing in Virginia, William Crawford suffered from a stroke. His supporters kept the news secret until he recovered enough to begin attending meetings with government officials again. But even then, it was clear that all was not well with the Treasury Secretary. One congressman described Crawford during this period as follows, quote, He walked slowly and like a blind man. His feet were wrapped up with two or three thickness over his shoes, and he told me that they were cold and numb. Clay wrote to a friend in late April that, quote, You see nothing now in the papers respecting the health of Mr. Crawford. The truth is, it is extremely precarious. He is greatly reduced, almost blind in one eye, and the other also affected. Those who know best his condition think it extremely doubtful if he will live through the summer. Despite his poor health, Crawford still won the Congressional Caucus nomination when it met on February 24, 1824. But the fact that only 64 folks showed up in such a contentious election season was the final nail in the coffin of the caucus nominating system. And this nomination did little to boost his campaign, which stumbled without Crawford's direction. Thus, the attention turned more towards the remaining three. Adams, Clay, and Jackson. When all the votes were in, Jackson won both the popular and the electoral vote. He won 152,901 votes nationwide versus Adams's 114,023, Clay's 47,217, and Crawford's 46,979. In the Electoral College, Jackson had 99 votes to Adams's 84, Crawford's 41, and Clay's 37. And this reversal of fortune in Clay and Crawford's standings in the electoral versus the popular vote would be key to what happened next. As Clay had predicted, no candidate had gotten a majority in the electoral college, which meant that, according to the 12th Amendment, the House would determine who would be president from the top three vote-getters. Since it was the electoral vote that mattered rather than the popular vote, Clay, therefore, was out of the running. However, it didn't mean that he was out of options. 
Remember last episode when I put forward a theory that Clay had presidential politics in mind with his approach to the Monroe administration, as he knew that, in the wisdom of the time of the Secretary of State succeeding to the presidency, Clay wasn't likely to even get to state until 1833? Well, some would say, and indeed did say for the rest of his life, that his position as Speaker of the House gave him a prime opportunity to fast-track that timetable. Now, likely most of you listening know the story. Clay had a meeting with Adams, of which only a portion of the conversation was written down by Adams in his diary. Clay had come to tell Adams of his intentions to throw his support in the House for Adams, and Adams conveniently stops his recollection of the discussion when Clay asked Adams, quote, to satisfy him with regard to some principles of great public importance, but without any personal considerations for himself. When the vote is held in the House on February 9, 1825, the election is decided on the first ballot as 13 state delegations vote for Adams, while seven vote for Jackson and four vote for Crawford. The next day, Adams tells an associate of his intention to nominate Clay as Secretary of State, and Clay accepts on February 17th. After this, and for the next four years, Jackson supporters would decry having the election stolen from the general by the supposed corrupt bargain between Adams and Clay in which the presidency was given in exchange for the State Department. However, a couple of items of interest came up while I was researching this episode. First, Robert Remini notes that Clay had traveled in late November 1824 to Monticello and Montpelier in Virginia to visit former Presidents Jefferson and Madison, respectively. During these visits, as Clay recalled, both men expressed their disapproval of the idea of a Jackson presidency, with Madison, though professing a preference for Crawford, did say that he felt Adams would be a, quote, very safe man. Meanwhile, Adams had already heard on New Year's Day that two-thirds of Kentucky's congressional delegation planned to vote for him, despite the fact that he had gotten no popular votes in the state, with Jackson, after Clay, being the next highest vote-getter in Kentucky. That was an early indicator that Clay intended to throw his support in the House for Adams, even before the two met and supposedly hashed out the corrupt bargain. Funny enough, in all of the Jackson camp's charges of a corrupt bargain, they neglected to mention that supporters of both Jackson and Crawford had also approached Clay in an attempt to sway his support. Indeed, Andrew Jackson himself went to Clay's lodgings at one point, but didn't find the speaker at home. Could it be that they doth protest too much and were just upset that Clay didn't take the deal that they had offered? To answer the charge of the stolen election, even noted strict constructionalists like Jefferson and Madison seemed to feel that the House of Representatives had every constitutional right to choose who should be president out of the three candidates independent of the popular or electoral vote results. As we saw most recently in the 2016 election, getting the most votes does not always make one president. For my two cents on the corrupt bargain charge, from all of my readings on Clay as well as this election and its ultimate result, I would not be shocked in the least if Clay at least in part took his personal considerations into mind when deciding what to do. His relationship with Adams may not have been great, but it was better than his relationship with Jackson, and Adams knew more about the experience he was bringing to the table as he had seen Clay in action in Europe and Washington. He also could have considered that, out of the three candidates, Adams was most likely to have a successful presidency. Crawford's health would prevent him from providing much leadership, and Jackson was seen as being unpredictable and reckless. Adams on paper seemed like the best bet, both for Clay and for the nation. However, 
As it turned out, his presidency would not be as successful as either Adams or Clay may have hoped. We'll get into Clay's tenure at the State Department in our next episode. Until then, please feel free to reach out to me via email at harrisonpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com, or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash harrisonpodcast, again, all one word, or on Twitter at harrisonpodcast, no space is needed for that one either. Source information for this episode can be found on the blog at whhpodcast.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, Dot com. And past episodes can be found there as well as on iTunes or Stitcher if you have any catching up to do. As always, special thanks to the podcast audio editor and resident clay fanatic, Andrew Foncook. If you could use Andrew's able editing experience for your next audio project, send an email to andrew at foncook. That's P-F-A-N-N-K-U-C-H-E dot com. And he'd be glad to work with you, even if it's a non-Henry Clay project. Until next time, everyone, thanks so much for listening, and take care.